sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Man, I tell you, uh, one of our producers texted me this week and said, I'm ready for people to quit dying so you can start talking about people who are alive on the podcast. <laughs> so, so we're about to talk about somebody else that died. That's what uh, it's, this year, I feel like we have lost so many. And, and I, it, some of it is... Just the way that it happens, I think. You know, we we were at that, at that point in rock history where a lot of people who came in on the early end are are diving out, right? So I guess that's yeah, that's going to happen. But it's it's disheartening. There's a list. It's like rockers that are alive over eighty. Oh man, then over seventy, and so you can actually see where they are in the oh. arc of their the their life. You Interesting. Know. Yeah, because you, can... you sort of don't remember. Like, you, like how old is Joe Perry? Like, yeah, I don't remember exactly. But I would do that game where I'd go probably over 70, right? Like, yeah, yeah that's interesting. We'll have to put that list in the show notes. Uh, so anyway, we're talking about Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett died last week, 76 years yeah. old. Skin cancer got him, which I didn't even realize that that was happening. But he, he really had this very long and singular career and i'm not using that term lightly you hear that term thrown around i think when you talk about artists but it applies to jimmy buffett maybe more than almost anybody that i can think of yeah and it really is true he he built a brand he did kind he did everything and he really he really did start like couch surfing um yeah 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 and and he didn't have any money and he there's there's a fella that he stayed with. I, I heard I read this story this week because man, people love Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. Oh. And, pe- and this and the stories are like Jimmy more Buffett. so than you see. Right. So uh, there, there was a story about so he was couch surfing. He did like a show and he was going to get on a bus and he had someone take him to the bus and he he got to the bus and he's like I don't have enough money for the bus. Yeah. And so he gave him money for the bus and then on. Every album after that, he put one of his songs on it, including 77's record. That oh, like the guy, the, the, the guy who gave him the bus money, like he used one of his songs as a songwriter. Yeah, it's like it's it's like, thanks, buddy. And it's like, <laughs> holy crap, man, but, that's a good investment plan. If yeah, yeah. If, you're, if your buddy might make it as a songwriter, you know, that guy never thought about that. Right. And it's yeah. like you, you, you mentioned this. You said that there's been this online outpouring of love for this guy, right? In terms of tributes and what, and it's, it's totally been impressive. Our producer Leif mentioned that they seem to be coming from everywhere in some really bizarre corners of the musical and otherwise universe. Like there, this guy had a huge effect on people. Yeah. And I, I found, I didn't know. And there's so many friends of mine. I didn't know who were parrot heads. I remembered as soon as it happened, I was like, Oh my gosh, it's going to affect I was like, yeah. that's like, that's what, like, that's their thing. Yeah. You know, and I know that's, people and, who and I was like, oh, that sucks. They're going to be really sad about it. One of the biggest parrot heads I know is the head of PR for a national fast casual restaurant brand that you have eaten at at some point in your life. Uh, you know, like major executive and on the weekends, she and her husband would blow off steam and at least once a year go see Jimmy Buffett. Like I know a ton of stories like that about people who were really, really in to Jimmy. And it, it is 
sort of funny. I've got a close friend who lost his dad when he was young, and he he still tells stories about Jimmy Buffett brings it back. You know, he puts Jimmy Buffett on because he used to listen to Jimmy Buffett in the car with his dad. Yeah, and here, like my relationship was like you know going to, through the you know okay here's Steve Miller get introduced to him here's Jim Croce oh get interesting to yeah him. Like all these things. And then when Jimmy Buffett came, it was like driving around in the car like his teenagers drinking and singing Jimmy Buffett songs. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know where I'm going to go when the volcano blow. It's like you just sometimes get the giggles because of how silly it is. And you know what's but, not close to the ocean? Uh, Tennessee, where you were driving around listening to those songs. <laughs> not Oceanside. Not a way you no. describe Lewisburg. No, no, a- absolutely not. So imagine that it's that idea. He, I saw an interview with him, and it looked like he was on the Cheers set. It was, <laughs> it was an Entertainment Tonight piece. It was like the 80s. Like, if people want to know how nerdy I am, let me repeat that. I was watching a, a video from 82, an Entertainment Tonight piece, where they're interviewing Jimmy Buffett on the set of Cheers. Hell yeah. Period. But he... <laughs> He, someone asked, they asked, like, what do people come up and say to you on the street about, like, where do they, you know, what they, right, right. what they like about your music? And he said, they want to go there. Like, that's, yeah, they want to go wherever that place is. Right. And it, it's, it, it's so interesting. Now, when we say he's singular, you already mentioned Perfect. this. It's, yeah. it's not just that he creates this brand around, like, being a beach bum, which is totally interesting. But there's also this entrepreneurship side of him that we'll talk about later where he really earns this title, right? Well, yeah. He 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 became a copyright guy, man. He made sure people weren't stealing his name and and putting Margaritaville and think like he he figured out how to do it. He went from couch surfing to having Margaritaville restaurants. Have you ever eaten at one of those? Yeah. Um, I can't say I was like, I think the food was good, Brian, but like, <laughs> it's I not what it's hammered. about. It's not about the, I food. just, no, I got hammered. I was drinking margaritas. I don't know. It's like, why would you drink anything else there? It seems like such a silly thing, but I, I had a great time. I was thinking that I'd never been to one, but I just was struck by the, the remembering that I think I might've eaten at one in the Jamaican airport. Which is sort of like if you're going to eat an airport Margaritaville, that's the one you want to eat at. Especially as we get into our story today, which heavily involves Jamaica. That seems like a good one. But yeah, if you're not going to be at the flagship in Key West, then maybe go to the Jamaican airport. I, I guess that counts. Does that count? Yeah. I remember I that, so. that it was. I was with this group, and I just remember finding all these people around this giant table with giant drinks that they had emptied. Because I don't think they have smalls at Margaritaville. But see, we were drinking tequila. We don't remember anything. Anyway, for our listeners, <laughs> getting back to what we were talking about, Jimmy Buffett was a m- very beloved musician. And really, the whole thing was about the live show. It, you know, Okay, Period. so this is very true. And it reminds me of when we were talking about Sinead O'Connor not that long ago after she passed, where, where she felt like an artist who was out of time. In a lot of ways. And and one of them was with how she embraced conversation about mental health and how she was sort of like 
way before the social media era, she was living sort of a social media era sort of life and then eased into actually having to live with social media. I would say in a different way, Buffett is the same in that he, way before there was COVID-19, <laughs> way before the CD died, he had figured out that the magic is at the concert. And he creates this incredible experience. And I've seen these references, right, of the influence he's had on other guys who have followed this pattern. Kenny Chesney comes to mind. Uh, you and I have both been to, to multiple Kenny Chesney concerts, right? And Right. And, yeah, and that's his thing. It's it's the beach. I mean, and Kenny Chesney is, is he, he was, I don't know if it was ripping off Jimmy Buffett. He, he did songs with Jimmy Buffett. But it was definitely right. borrowing from the template. Another guy who comes after, who's newer, who is sort of doing the same thing in a different way, is Zach Brown. Really interesting artist for me because I was like, I initially wrote him off until I like saw him doing like an ACDC song or something. Oh, totally Zach, Zach Brown's an incredible musician. And that's the thing, right? It's yeah. like a lot of these guys, like a Jimmy Buffett, you do. You write them off. Because the songs, as you've already pointed out, are are pretty silly. But there, he shared this sense of cult fandom that's similar to Dave Matthews' band. I mean, people I knew who were into Buffett, a lot of them were also into DMB, and they carry it into the same sort of subculture before the shows. There's tailgate parties in the parking lot. You know, there's probably quite a bit of marijuana. All of that stuff. And obviously, Parrothead, which are the super fans, obviously it's it has it's rooted from Deadheads, right? I read this the people that go see the shows. I, I didn't know that this happened near us. Have you ever been to the Timberwolf Amphitheater at Kings Island in Mason, Ohio? No, no I'm pretty sure I saw contemporary Christian music uh, superstars, the Newsboys, play there in circa like 1997. <laughs> Superstar. They were big, dude. They were real fucking big. Take me to my leader. Take me to your leader was a great record. Shut the hell up. Anyway, uh, no, no, it's just those words together were just so funny. <laughs> he, they were just like got me, got me the giggles. Long before the Newsboys graced the, that stage, uh, he, Jimmy Buffett played a show in the '80s at Kings Island. This is outside of Cincinnati for those who are not from this part of the country. It's a great place. If you've never been there. And he makes a comment from the stage about the number of people in attendance who are wearing Hawaiian shirts and parrot hats. And at the time, Timmy Schmidt from the Eagles is in his band, is in the Coral Reefer band, and he coins the term parrot head. That comes from Tim Schmidt. There's some trivia night knowledge for you that you might need sometime. And also Tim Schmidt, like cha-ching, like what a great, like what a great idea for sure. And here's the thing. And if you want to talk about super fans, we have deadheads and parrot heads and metal heads or whatever. Like, have you ever met like the parrot head that's just like a complete asshole? Like, <laughs> no, I haven't. All par- it's like it's like that. It's like a stereotype. It's like all parrot heads are really nice people. Well, that was <laughs> that was sort of the brand was like just here for a good time, but not. I'm not, you know, I'll tip my bartender. Like, that was sort of the Jimmy Buffett brand. And as part of this cult appeal, Jimmy acknowledged that the live show was where it at, was where it was at. He was he was never shy about that. It was never really just about the albums he was making, like a lot of artists felt like it was in that time period. Right. And this is really interesting now as we live in a period where everyone is sort of forced to be a live act. This is what I mean about him being ahead of the uh, ahead of the time. Yeah, there isn't a ton of money to be made from only producing recorded output. Well, think think about this. We talk all the time about 
folks who get taken advantage of from rock history. And it has to do with the way their deals are set up with their recorded output. Very rarely does it have to do with their live show, right? Now, if I'm being truthful, I never really had a lot of respect for Jimmy's actual music. It always seemed sort of silly to me. But one right. thing you discover really quickly when you learn about him is that he comes up with a certain type of folk artist, several of them, and they end up being much bigger artistic reputations, these guys he comes up with. But they don't necessarily have long-lasting commercial prosperity. And so it's an interesting conundrum it's like what do you want do you want to be sort of the joke the good time guy but be a billionaire like jimmy buffett or do you want to be this respected folk artist who sort of disappears even though people respect him it's like a weird spinoff kind of like breaking bad but like but like songwriters <laughs> with uh but you're talking about jim croce right well he jim, jim croce is a great example but also also jerry jeff walker and right. I, I would like to just pause right now so we can talk about how much I love the song L.A. Freeway. W where are you at on that song? Well, I, I don't think I like that song as much as you do, but <laughs> I'm just being honest. But but as soon as someone turned me on to Jerry Jeff Walker, I, I realized I was really late. I was really late in the game. And I might have been like 25 or something. Like, yeah. Just missed like over like went past me. And it was very different because it changed the chronological order for, for things in outlaw country, which yeah. is something that I totally... Right? Like. I mean, that, that gets missed. He's he is not in that conversation. Typically, when you say yeah. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard, people don't say Jerry Jeff Walker in that list. But Jerry Jeff Walker is an important part of all of that happening. Now, there's talk when Jim Croce dies that certain people in the industry... Uh, want to make, especially Don Gant, let's just not say certain people in the industry, Don Gant wants to make Jimmy the next Jim Croce because they he gets them on the same label at that point. But it's it's Jerry Jeff Walker who's actually responsible for making Jimmy the Jimmy that we know. Right. So here comes the crazy part, ready, everybody. So Jimmy's first gig in the industry was at Billboard magazine as a reporter for real man isn't that crazy so he has to do a story about him so they become friends jerry jeff walker right and uh this is the quote here from jimmy buffett i done a story on jerry jeff and he actually wound up staying at my house and we got oh yeah this is the jerry jeff walker story awesome uh we actually uh got a little very drunk that night so much so that he was calling home in those days. The operator came on and he was using profanity and to his girlfriend or something. They cut my phone off. The phone company called me in the morning and I had a hangover and they said, are you ready to behave or what? And Jerry Jeff said, I'm sorry, ma'am. If you ever get to Miami and I can do anything for you, let me know. <laughs> uh, what a fucking weird story. <laughs> it's a great, like... That's a great story, Jimmy Buffett. It's an auspicious beginning, but it, it really does change Jimmy's life. I'm not kidding, because later he takes a gig in Miami. He gets down there. He finds out he has the wrong weekend. He's not at the right place. So he's broke. He doesn't have anywhere to stay, but he's got Jerry Jeff's phone number in his pocket. So he ends up living with Jerry for a while. And Jerry, during this time where they're living together for a few weeks, will be like, hey, bro, let's go down to Key West. Have you ever been there? Let me show you Key West. And this is Jimmy talking, quote, the music scene in Key West, when I got there in 72, wasn't a music scene. If you just got a job in a bar, that was the music scene. Yeah, and so he changes that. Oh, now, for all sure. Sorts people, all sorts of people go down there and record because of 
um, his studio and his influence. I mean, it helps to understand his sensibility a little better if you understand that he starts as a busker. After college in 69, he goes to New Orleans. He plays on the street. Have you ever busked? We've talked about this, right? I don't know if we've talked about it. I don't think I... Um, I've played guitar out, but I haven't busked. I, haven't, like, I, I did it in high school just like one afternoon. I got like a... I feel like we've talked about this on the show. I got a temporary permit to do this with uh, my best friend at the time. And we went down and tried it one afternoon. We made like a 250 We went to the Goodwill and bought a shirt apiece. And then uh, that was it. That was the end of our busking career. But he, so he does that, and then later he ends up playing bars in Vacation Town. So if you if you've not been able to conceptualize what the Jimmy Buffett sound is, here you go. It's busker meets bar band. Yeah, and you mentioned you know we talked about this first gig in music is working as a reporter at Billboard. Oh, right on. Did you know that his first big story he breaks is the story of Flat and Scruggs breaking up, dude. This is a big deal. Like, we laugh about that, but Flat and Scruggs breaking up was a huge deal in music at the time. It's, it's a huge freaking deal, and he wrote that story. If you're not familiar with it, let's just run this down for people. So those dudes, Flat and Scruggs, are two guys who meet and start playing bluegrass in the 40s. And they last for 25 years. Do the math. You last for 25 years in the 40s. You haven't made it to the 70s yet. Uh, this breakup is huge because what it is is this push and pull between traditionalist and progressive ideas around music and what bluegrass specifically should be, right? So they don't speak. Flat and Scruggs quit speaking after a 25-year partnership. They don't talk for like a decade after this goes down and they break up. And while he's at Billboard, he's also trying to make country albums. If you ever feel bad about yourself or think you should quit something you love, just remember... Jimmy Buffett's first album sold 324 copies. <laughs> it sounds like it's kind of like not even true. But I, I think that's probably he wouldn't have told us I, that. I love that number. It's like nobody buy it. We don't want it to go any higher. 324 is perfect. It takes right. a while. It takes a while for him to pop. I don't know if people know this. Let me just put it this way. Changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes, which is like the album you know if you know an album. That's that's Jimmy's seventh record. Seven. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I remember my sister had a Buffett record, but it was a concert record. It was a well, live record. And that's the other thing. That's what people have, is they have, how do we capture the live experience? So if they do have an album, they have the live one. Yep. But he got a few breaks before then. There was a record deal and some touring with the Eagles. I mean, That's how, how he meets Timmy, a, yeah. Which is a kick-ass, like, uh, catching on to the back of that wagon. But it's 77 uh, with what a great year. Jesus Christ. How many things happen in 77? So Elvis dies, Kiss Alive 2, Frampton Comes Alive, Margaritaville. I didn't even know Margaritaville you, you was just, part of You this put thing. Kiss Alive in the two. list. Kiss you Alive 2. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so here's a fun fact that's only important to me and you. But this is the period. Changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes is the period that Tim Kreckle is in his band. Yeah, and I only knew about him by uh, planting myself um, here where I live. I yeah, didn't know so here's, about him. here's the thing for folks who are not from Louisville, Kentucky area, which is everybody. So it, Tim Kreckle, musical legend from the city that Murdoch and I live in, and he died in 2009. But up to that point, up until he died, because he was young when he died, like 50-something, 
he was performing out. He had the Tim Crackle Orchestra, which was a, you know, it wasn't an actual orchestra, but a band that he would club with and play at our favorite venues around town. And he's a big deal. I mean, he still is sort of a hallowed name in the music scene around here. And I had not realized that he was in that version of the Coral Reefer Band. He's only in the Coral Reefer Band for a little bit, but he's there for changes in attitudes. Yeah, so... Do you think we should go to the mailbag and let's let's pull up the letter about Jimmy Buffett? Because I think we've got everybody ready. Yeah, the question comes from Larry in Omaha. Do you want to you want to read this? Oh yeah, Larry says, "Is it true that Jimmy Buffett and Bono from U two were almost in a plane crash together?" Someone told me that recently, and I thought it sounded highly unlikely. Would appreciate you weighing in. Thanks for the letter, Larry. Uh, I learned about this very recently too because i heard about it like telephone game this is a rare instance where the question from our listener is actually toning down the particulars like this story is actually way crazier than they were quote unquote almost in a plane crash oh yeah yeah because here we get to talk about like how like a rich person spends their money (laughs) let's just let's just be honest i mean like how cool is it like initially initially i heard this I, i i heard this thing that once he wanted to buy a boat like as soon as he could buy a boat, he wanted to uh, buy uh-huh. a boat yep. and not, and not that he had any money at the time. He was just like, if this doesn't all work out, I can sail uh, and I can, I can make food. And that's you know. 100% what he even says when he talks to boat international. Do you subscribe to that magazine? <laughs> Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I do not have yeah. Boat Boat International Magazine in my bathroom. But I will say, I don't know if you know this, Boat International Magazine, their subtitle, they're billed as the global authority on super yachting. Do you know what super yachting is? Because I did not. That's an actual term. Um, I, I learned about it by reading about Jimmy Buffett for this episode. Um, I mean... I, I guess it must be the first thing I think about when I think about super yachting is I think about that uh, movie with uh, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell where she's overboard. She's on overboard. I think about her up on top of the ship. Dude, I saw overboard at too young an age, like really young. Like I must have been six. I was at my friend's house and like they put it on. There's a sex scene in that movie. And I my six year old mind was like, what's happening? I don't know. And I'm very confused. And it was in the house where. I'm sure I've talked about this on the show before too, but I had this friend when I was really young who his dad had decided beta, right? Not VHS. And so he had this whole, he had this whole living room that was floor to ceiling beta tapes. And so I'm pretty sure I watched overboard on beta, but anyway, boat international talked to Jimmy Buffett in the last five years or so about his fascination and participation in the boating world. And I mean, this has been going on for a long, long time long time and you have the quote from from this article so jimmy used the money he made from his second album a white sport coat and a pink crustacean Mm, what a title is to buy that first boat which is called euphoria and his accountant thought he was crazy but buffett called it an insurance policy he said quote i said look if I don't know if this music thing's going to last, but no matter what, I can sail, I can cook, I can sing, and I know that I can live on the boat and go where I want, end quote. That's why people like Jimmy Buffett, Brian. (laughs) 
end of episode. So yeah, <laughs> it makes sense, right? Jimmy Buffett would have this lifelong love affair with boats, but as his wealth increases, so do his transportational aspirations, right? So then he learns how to pilot and he starts buying small planes. But if the boat guy's going to have an airplane, it makes sense that he needs to have one that is suited to be around water. So this is how he eventually ends up with a groomant HU-16 Albatross. Yeah, so everyone, if you didn't know this about Jimmy Buffett, I'm pretty excited to tell you all about it. This is where things about Jimmy Buffett and things that he buys are, I think, very different than you and I. So <laughs> this is an amphibious seaplane. Have you ever been on an amphibious seaplane? First of all, can we just all celebrate the fact that we're saying the phrase amphibious seaplane multiple times right. in this episode? Who who is listening right now that wants to start a fucking band <laughs> called Call Amphibious, Amphibious Seaplane? <laughs> or that's the name of your record? Like, what a great couple of things. By the way, Larry, thanks for the letter so we could talk about this. So Jimmy Buffett has this, uh, it's, it's an amphibian seaplane. If the Air Force and the Navy and the Coast Guard all use them for search and rescue, right? So in 90, 1990, Jimmy Buffett buys and restores one for himself, which he will call the Hemisphere Dancer. Now, spoiler alert, Jimmy does not crash this plane. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that. But by the time he gets this one, he has a crash on his record. Right. So 1994, Jimmy was fishing with a friend in Massachusetts. They get done. They try to get home via a twin engine airplane. I mean, this is a brush with brush with death, really. But one of the crafts pontoon runners had a crack in it, which causes an uneven weight. And so it made it to where it like right after takeoff, it just went right back into the ocean. And so he ended up having to swim to another boat that was in the water that was going by. But this experience doesn't slow down his aerial aquatic expeditions. So that's why this big seaplane makes an appearance in 1996 when Jimmy goes to Jamaica. And I don't know if you know this, who he hangs out with in Jamaica. It's someone we have talked about before on the show, a man who brings Jamaican music to the masses. Yeah, and... You might go, oh, it's Bob Marley. It's like, well, I don't know if you noticed a lot of episodes. It's been this gentleman named Chris Blackwell yeah. who's making yet another appearance in this episode. It's the white guy who got the black guy uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, head back to episode 122, Rock and Roll versus Reggae, for all of the Chris Blackwell content that you can handle. Uh, but he's he's quite the guy. Yeah, so real quick, too long, didn't read. Chris Blackwell is the owner of Island Records. And at this point, he's known Jimmy Buffett for a long time. And another person that he's known for a long time is a man who goes by a singular title, Bono. Now, you might remember that Blackwell and Island Records and U2, they have this long partnership. And in fact, 14 years before this, all the way back in 1982, Bono actually honeymoons in Jamaica using Chris Blackwell's property on the west end of the island. So Blackwell is bringing some pals together on this week in 1996 to party at his pad in jamaica i we need to talk about this sick ass place that chris blackwell lived have, have we talked about this before in all of our chris yeah. blackwell talk 
Now, this is some crazy stuff. So like if you wanted to talk about like, I want to cr- own a crazy historical home. The crazy part is that they owned it before it became crazy historical. So, I mean, it's like yeah. an old plantation home or something. I mean, I think it's really, really nice, obviously. But it's actually owned by Chris Blackwell's family. And his mom sells it to Ian Fleming. And uh, just in case you don't know, Ian Fleming is the man who will write the books that contain a character named James Bond. And so when when this guy owns the property, he actually calls it Goldeneye. That's where the term Goldeneye comes from. It is his property in Jamaica. This place is literally James Bond shit. Yeah, so on this day in 1996, Buffett Blackwell, Bono, his wife, Allison, is a six-year-old son, Jordan, and a three-year-old daughter, Eve. So the kids are really young. And Adam Clayton is on the plane, too. Yo, yo, got to give a shout-out to Adam Clayton. We didn't know he was on the plane at all. I know. Right? I Actually, most reports you read of this omit that Adam Clayton was on the plane. I, I think I'd kind of heard about this story, but the way I heard about this story was definitely not true. Yeah, this story gets widely misinterpreted. Our producers, when we were talking it over with them, uh, one of them said, well, that's how you want these stories to be, right? Like, if you're the artist, you want the story to be a little blown out of proportion. And this one's not really blown out of proportion. It's just not told correctly. So, yes, Adam Clayton is there. And to be clear, Allie, Jordan, and Eve are the wife and children of Bono, not the wife and children of Jimmy Buffett. In a lot of things you read, it makes it sound like his kids were on the plane. It's Bono's kids that were on the plane. And at some point during the initial excursion, let me make this clear. They're going for a picnic. So they like wake up in the party pad and decide they're going to picnic. I mean, that's awesome. What a life. And so Jimmy Buffett's like, cool, we can use my plane to get to wherever we need to go. Right. Uh, That's pretty awesome. At some point during this initial excursion, someone alerted Jamaican police that there was a drug deal that was about to happen and where they say it's going to happen happens to be the same side of the island that Chris Blackwell's property is on. So here's what happens. So the plane lands on the water. You can't land right on the shore. There's all these kinds of protocols. Like, think about it. We're talking about the amphibious. What is the name of our band? (laughs) Amphibious Amphibious seaplane. (laughs) Seaplane, right? I was like, it isn't just seaplane. Oh, it is. So there's there's protocols in the with the amphibious seaplane people. So a boat is sent out to the landed plane to pick up the passengers and the passengers unload from the plane into the boat. And once everyone is off the plane, the two guys that are piloting, piloting the plane, then start it up in taxi. And this is where the shots were fired at the plane. And, you know, backing up just a little bit, you have to wonder, why were they saying that there was going to be a drug deal that happened? Why would this matter or be of any interest to anybody uh, on the Jamaican police outside of, you know, just like it, it just seems random, right? Well, here's the thing. There's some context that's totally missing. Uh, where you typically hear about this story. In the show notes, there's an academic article article by Holger Hanke 
subtitled The Shipwriter Controversy and the Question of Caribbean Sovereignty. And I'm just going to read the opening paragraph. Here it is. In the latter half of 1996, U.S.-Caribbean relations deteriorated notably over the issue of international cooperation in the field of drug interdiction in the national waters of the Caribbean islands. The United States, long concerned about the Caribbean's role as a conduit for South American drug traffickers, strongly urged several countries of the region to enter into an interdiction agreement allowing the presence of and searches by the U.S. Coast Guard within the territorial waters of the nation. So basically, later in this same year where this happens, everything gets so out of control that there's this ongoing fight because the drug trafficking is so high in this area between U.S. policymakers and the countries in which they are trying to get sovereignty to prosecute people and arrest people and pull people over and shoot at planes that they think have drugs in them. So there's there's a power struggle happening. And behind the scenes, going back to this, this plane on the lake, when the shots are fired, as Murdoch set up, here's what's said to have happened. The police... Yeah. The police got a tip about a drug deal. And then they have to find a spot from which to survey the section of the island where they are told it's going to happen. So they head to a working lighthouse at the top of the peninsula. And they're looking for proof that this shit's going down. So when they see this fucking seaplane, which I gotta say probably looks very suspicious. If you've not seen pictures of the seaplane, you can do that in the show notes too. They see it drop into the water. They watch a boat go meet it. I mean, come on. Have you seen Miami Vice? That's that's how every drug deal happens. They figure they found the fuckwads they were looking for, and somebody starts shooting. So, you know, what do the rock stars do? Bono and his family hit the deck. And this Literally is a hit the deck. Like, that's, right? you know, that's an expression we use, but they for real hit the deck. For sure. Um and it's like this quote just makes it like, oh, it makes it sound really scary. Uh, the quote is, quote, it was absolutely terrifying. I was convinced we'd all be killed. The kids are still very upset from their nightmare or- ordeal, but it was only by the grace of God that we survived. I mean, listen, yeah. Bono, you're a little melodramatic, right? Like, I, I love the guy, but oh, that's, all, that's some high drama. The gunmen hit the windshield, though. So for the pilots, this isn't this isn't not dramatic. Nah, nah, that they shot at the plane for real. True story. And, and they're trying to just literally be in one piece. That's that's what the goal is. So they get the plane back in the air, they circle, and they go back towards Kingston where they came from, and they get that thing on the ground. And when they get it on the ground in Kingston, police are there. And what do they discover in the plane? First, not. Drugs, <laughs> but they find two bullet holes in the fuselage, which is crazy. Now, imagine being the guy hosting this party. You you invite friends over. You've got a swanky pad. You're like, hey, Mur- Murdoch, come hang out with me. We're going to have a killer weekend. We're going to go eat some chicken on the beach, and we're going to picnic with our family. Bring your kids, please, by all means. And then this shit happens. So Chris Blackwell's a little embarrassed. The next day, he issues a public statement. Do you want to read his public statement? It's funny that yeah. he like has a press secretary or whatever, and he's like, here's my public statement about getting shot Ex- at. Exactly what Brian said. Could you imagine having a throwdown party at your place like on a Saturday, and it's like no one has to go to work on a Sunday, and so whatever it like is. Like a shot at. It's cool. It's cool. 
you're and you're like you know it's just straight up like kick ass and you get in a plane you're just living it or whatever uh and then at the end of the party you have to issue a public statement <laughs> about your party that my friends is a is a party <laughs> maybe great or maybe not in this case maybe not quote this is a terrible incident for my guest and the children to be shot at is distressing and regrettable. That feels like it goes without saying. I feel like he undersells. Bono oversells and Chris Blackwell undersells. It's regrettable. And what's the Jamaican police department's response to this? So this is my favorite part. Literally, the assistant superintendent of the police department, which doesn't sound like a real position, is pushed out to explain this to reporters. And he says... <laughs> It's, quote, not quite regular. <laughs> quote, it's not quite regular for police to open fire on a suspicious aircraft. And, <laughs> quote, we are still gathering information. What a what a PR champion. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anybody is uh, familiar with this, but uh, the uh, the poli- Jamaican police officers, they investigated themselves and they found no criminal charges to file against themselves. <laughs> It's shocking that a governing body decided the cops were not responsible. This is a quote from Buffett to the Boston Globe. Nobody was hurt, so I said, let's just get on with it. Some people said, you could have sued them, you could have sued the government, but I said, nah, it's probably just karma. We're even now. And apparently, I mean, he he follows us up by saying that they still had the damn picnic. Listen, nobody's stopping Jimmy Buffett from fucking being Jimmy Buffett. A man who eats chicken on the beach. It is happening. Whether you shoot at him or not, goddammit. Listen, I don't I don't know if anybody out here has ever eaten fried chicken on the beach, but <laughs> it is it is one awesome to a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not the best food. Like, you know, anything like if you know, it's 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 so, totally crazy. But but he then goes and does what any good songwriter would oh, do. Yeah. He channels it into art, and it becomes the Jamaica Mistake. <laughs> you you know this song? Have you jammed this yeah. song, Jamaica Mistake? It was a beautiful day, the kind you want to toast. We were treetop flying, moving west along the coast. Then we landed in the water, just about my favorite thrill. When some asshole started firing as we taxied to the grill. It doesn't tarnish his relationship with Blackwell. Jimmy Buffett and Blackwell continue to be great friends. Eventually, he he does have an album or two come out on Island. Blackwell is going to help him fund the musical that he creates with Herman Wolk, which we're not even going to talk about, but that's a thing if you want to look it up if you're a literary person. And it, it, it's just absolutely nuts, all of it. Yeah, and if you're if you didn't know, and you're going to be in Orlando, and you want to like not go to Epcot, <laughs> I just I gave it like two <laughs> two stars. I thought everything else was great. If you're going to be in Orlando for anything. The plane is at Margaritaville in Orlando. They have the freaking plane, the real one. And it, it becomes part of the Buffett iconography. It's on T-shirts. It's on restaurant menus, et cetera, et cetera, which leads us to the part of the Buffett story that we haven't really talked about, that we touched on it up top, which is Buffett, the businessman. Yeah. he. The best part about the story is he did what most entrepreneurs do. He failed. 
Yeah, ever. 1984. I don't know if people know this. He opens a t-shirt shop in Gulf Shores, and it goes belly up within a year. That does not work. He goes back to Key West, tries it slightly differently, tweaks, does some, you know, learns some things and, and fixes some things, and that in Key West is what will eventually become the very first Margaritaville, and that, of course, is a chain that now still exists today. Yeah, and there's a second restaurant, if you didn't know, um, Cheeseburger in Paradise, of course, and he sells it after a decade, and then that company eventually shuts down, but he has plenty of other ventures, too. He owns minor league baseball team. He has beer. He's uh, has, I guess, some ownership of casinos, got a record label. What, you know, dude, you forgot weed. And oh, that's f- right. He has his own weed. <laughs> Jimmy Buffett has his own weed. And a fucking retirement community. Do you know you, about do you know about this? In 2017, Latitude Margaritaville, a 3900 home billion dollar retirement village near Interstate 95 in Daytona Beach, Florida, was announced. And then he was like, oh, I'm going to build these on Hilton Head and in South and uh, in Panama City Beach, which are two places I like to frequent. Would you ever yeah. live in a Jimmy Buffett retirement community? Does that seem like a thing you could sell your wife on? Uh, you know, I figure at some point, once just everything stops working and you have to do things less or you have to be, you know, physical to make sure that everything doesn't shut down. But you're just, you know, I mean, you you want I think is I don't know if it's Emerson or Thoreau or whoever it was. It's like the less things you have, the less you have to dust. Yeah. 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 There you go. Right. So that, you, that actually sounds to. like Jimmy Buffett. But but yeah, we can we can say it was Thoreau. Uh, I I want to know this, though. If it's probably not Jimmy Buffett, he's probably not your guiding light in terms of the retirement community you'd want to live in. But I'm curious as to who that would be. Since we talked at the beginning of the show to sort of just close up in a full circle, and we said we're we're losing a lot of key players in the rock and roll world because rock and roll is 80 years old or whatever, right? So who's the guy who you would follow into a retirement community? I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm curious. Are you saying, like, if someone opened up a retirement community? If if another famous rock star opened up a retirement community, which one would tempt you? I'm going to go left turn completely on you and say Snoop Dogg. (laughs) That's really, that's good thinking. I think by the time you're ready to go to one, he might have one. That seems like totally in his path. I mean, I I can't imagine how that would suck. I was going to say Springsteen. Because I feel like, you know, things would still be reasonably priced, right? You know, I mean, it, it would. he was always controlling the price of his tickets, and he was always, you know, worried about the little guy. So I think I could get in there and get the meatloaf special on Tuesdays and, like, still have a little bit of money for the for Parcheesi or whatever. I feel like that could all work out. Oh, well, I was thinking more like if you're in the Snoop Dogg nursing home. <laughs> oh, I know what you're thinking. The, the worst, I know what you're thinking worst, in that nursing home. The worst thing that could happen is that the families complain where they're like, I can't believe you're giving our father dirt weed. You know, it's, <laughs> it's it like it can't ever suck. Like nothing about it will stink. You'll have food. Except the dirt it weed. That'll it, smell bad. Well, it doesn't matter. It's it's still it's still marijuana. It's still THC. Oh and then God. you get food. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the cream corn tastes great when you're high as hell. That's that is a true fact. Uh wow. R.I.P. Jimmy Buffett. That's all I have to yeah. say. 
I know people people really love Jimmy Buffett a lot, and you can understand why because you know he's such a really like um, he's a real likable guy, and people have a connection to like a real fun connection to his music, and so um, it it really affected a lot of people. You know, so. another note I heard from the producers, which I had not really thought of, is it was very appropriate for Jimmy Buffett to have passed on a on a holiday weekend. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> a three-day weekend. A three-day weekend, which oh. he references in one of his most famous songs. The first two lines of Come Monday are heading out to San Francisco for the Labor Day weekend show. Yeah. There's a um, – I sent you the link. Let's We'll throw it in the show notes. It's uh, He's on Letterman, and it's uh, early 80s. And uh, he plays some other song. He's got on a, just an amazing, fantastic sweater. You know, I mean, if you know what like '80s Jimmy Buffett sweater is, like he's wearing that, and then he uh, he he's he's going to play another song, and he just says kind of fast. He said, "Yeah, this next song helped uh, save me from killing myself in a hotel room." Blah blah blah, and oh, wow. uh, Letterman. Letterman asked him, like, you know, kind of to clarify. And he said, yeah. And he goes, um, yeah, I was everything. You know, like he said something about like his dog, like, like he said he had just kind of given up. Uh, and so that song was an inspiration for him. Like it was a successful song. It was a song that was an inspiration for him. And I think that people do have a connection to his music that's, more has more depth to it than I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blows. <laughs> oh my god! So if you want to get involved in the show, it's we are the story guys at gmail.com, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories is the place where you can support the show with your hard earned dollar. We do appreciate that, and welcome to our new uh, Patreon subscribers who have Woo. come in here recently. We are we are very happy to have you. And uh, you can always find us on Instagram. It's backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. I think we end with a little bit of come Monday, but until uh, next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories. Heading out to San Francisco for the Labor Day weekend show. I got my hush puppies on I guess I never was meant for glitter rock and roll And honey, I didn't know That I'd be missing you so Come Monday, it'll be alright Come Monday, I'll be holding you tight